Let me ask you a question. Are you familiar with this phrase, famous last words? Sometimes we use it when a statement is made that, that is usually true, but there's always that chance that things could go wrong. Oh, we won't be late for the wedding. I'm always on time. Famous last words. Or it's the third driveway on the left, right after the pole barn, across from the speed limit sign. You can't miss it. Famous last words. Or, or maybe sometimes what happens is that somebody says something that could put them in danger, and it really could be their last words. Have you heard that thing, a Kentuckian's last words? Hey, y'all, watch this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, things sometimes go wrong. Or maybe you have a chance, Super Bowl Sunday, you meet Travis Kelsey face-to-face, -face and you say, why don't you just man up and marry her? Put us all out of our misery, <laughs> okay? Famous last words, right? Uh, that, that might be it for you. Well, before famous last words kind of became a sarcastic response to a questionable remark, I mean, we just use the phrase last words, famous last words, as the last words that somebody said right before they died, right? I thought maybe it'd be interesting to look up some famous last words. I'm going to give you just a few, see if you recognize them. This is audience participation, okay? There are no prizes, but if you get one right, then you can high-five high Josh Bunce on the way out the door and say, yeah, that was me, okay? Um, so here we go. I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Anybody know? Nathan Hale, well done, okay, you get a high five. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, he spied for the Americans, he was hanged by the British, those notorious British, the next day. Okay, et tu brute, which is Latin for you too, Brutus? Julius Caesar, that's right, he was ambushed, he was stabbed to death by the Roman senators on the Ides of March 44 B.C., and his friend Brutus was one of the ones who put a knife in him. All right, this next one is from a, a famous novel. Okay, this is from literature, and I'm looking for first the name of the novel, okay? And if you can name the person who said it, Josh will give you five bucks. Okay, I just made that up. Um, okay, tis a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. Tis a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. The book is by Charles Dickens. Anybody? A Tale of Two Cities. Well done. Ding, 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 ding. And uh, that was my wife. She probably read my notes or something earlier. Anyway, do you know who said it? Sidney Carton. Sidney Carton. Okay, famous last words. There's lots of them. It was reputed that Conrad Hilton, the founder of Hilton Hotels, said on his deathbed, Leave the shower curtain on the inside of the tub. <laughs> so wise. So wise. Billionaire John Jacob Astor IV said to his wife, Get in the lifeboat to please me. Goodbye, dearie. I'll see you later. Can you venture a guess where he was when he spoke those words? Titanic. Yep, yep. During the Battle of the Wilderness, Civil War General John Sedgwick said to his men, they could not hit an elephant at this distance. And it was his famous last words, okay? Then there was Ramon Narvez, Spanish prime minister in the mid-1800s. His last words, I don't have to forgive my enemies. I've had them all shot. We're beginning a series today that is simply called Famous Last Words. Words are powerful. 
And a person's last words often reveal something about their character, especially when they know these are the last words they're ever going to speak. Well, nobody's last words have been repeated more often or studied more intensely than the last words of Jesus from the cross. Jesus was dying as painful a death as you can possibly imagine, and yet he spoke seven brief statements from the cross. And he revealed to witnesses to that day, and he revealed to to believers throughout history some defining characteristics of his unparalleled life. And in these weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to unpack each of these seven sayings so that we can understand more about him, of course, but also so that we can learn some things about ourselves. We, we will not die for all the sins of the world like Jesus did, but I think all of us want to finish our lives well. I think we'd like to leave this world having accomplished something worthwhile. And Jesus is going to help us see how to do that. Now, there are four books in the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus' life. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels, the good news. And as you might imagine, different ones of these books kind of focus on different things. There are numerous differences between them, but Luke, for instance, tells us more about Jesus' birth than the others. John really talks about the identity of Jesus and gives some key miracles to reinforce that. Matthew quotes a lot from the Old Testament because he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience and he wanted to prove to them that Jesus was the one that the Old Testament prophets foretold. Mark told more stories about Jesus than words that Jesus said so that we would kind of get a picture of Jesus' life. None of the four writers While they share numerous stories, none of them give us all seven statements of Jesus from the cross. We have to read all four books to get the seven statements. But most people agree that the first thing that Jesus spoke from the cross is what we're going to talk about today. And I would argue that it may be the most unexpected of all the things that he said. Luke kind of sets it up this way in Luke 23, 32. He said, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with Jesus. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, here we go, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's a a far cry from, I don't have to forgive my enemies, I've had them all shot. You know, it's pretty remarkable considering the torture that Jesus has just been put through and the agonizing hours that still lay ahead. He actually prayed for his enemies. And there were plenty of enemies in the crowd that day. People who desperately needed to be forgiven whether they realized it or not. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about what Jesus prayed and who he was praying for. But the fact is, this statement, I think, reveals the character of Jesus as profoundly as anything that happened throughout his entire life. See, in a matter of a few hours, Jesus endured six trials. He appeared before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, before Herod, the corrupt Jewish king, and then twice before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. In each encounter, Jesus was was ridiculed, he was slandered, he was lied about, he was assaulted. 
Matthew tells us that these, these dignified religious leaders actually spat in Jesus' face and they punched him with their fists. And then there was this beating by the Roman soldiers, as brutal and horrific as anything you could possibly imagine. I think most of us struggled to kind of get our arms around this abuse until in 2004 the movie came out, The Passion of the Christ. In a graphic way, that movie demonstrated the overwhelming nature of Roman torture. William Barclay said in his commentary that many condemned men in Roman times did not even survive the beating. One early church historian said that Jesus was so disfigured from the scourging that when his mother Mary approached the cross, she had to ask which one was her son. After the beatings, the New Testament tells us that Jesus was taken to Golgotha. Golgotha is the Hebrew word for the maybe more familiar Latin word Calvary. And it means the place of the skull. It was there that condemned criminals were brought to die. It was there that they drove nails into Jesus' hands and feet. He was hung up, probably naked. He was mocked. He was ridiculed by the crowds. And due to the nature of crucifixion, man, every breath was torture because a criminal would have to use his arms to try to pull himself up and his legs to try to push himself up to be able to catch a breath. Gathering the strength then to speak was even more excruciating. In fact, I read that many victims of crucifixion actually died of asphyxiation. Right? They, they just reached the point where they could no longer pull themselves up to get a breath. It's why soldiers sometimes would break the legs of the victims if death needed to be hurried along because they would suffocate faster. And so Jesus endured that kind of torture and misery for six hours. And that's not all. The, the, the Gospel of Matthew tells us about the crowds and the people who were there heaping abuse on him. It says in Matthew 27, 39, the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, if you're the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. And the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed. But he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe in him. He trusted God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Luke says in his gospel, they even sneered at him. It's like Luke can't believe it. If the torture weren't enough, they even sneered at him. They were actually enjoying this horrific scene. And that was the setting into which Jesus uttered the first of his last words. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Ken Geyer wrote, not only does Jesus ask his father to forgive them, he offers a kind word on their behalf, explaining their behavior. They don't know what they're doing. Geyer said, the callous ears of these soldiers have heard all kinds of words on that hill. All kinds, in every language, but they've never heard words like these. Never like these, not once until now. He said it's incredible if you think about it. In the midst of this humiliating abuse from the crowds and the excruciating pain of the cross, Jesus is still about his Father's business. He is still focused 
on forgiveness. That's the character of Jesus. Max Lucado wrote, sometimes I wonder if we don't see Christ's love as much in the people he tolerated as the pain he endured. Now, friends, I want you to listen. This is really important. Jesus chose this. See, the irony here is that he could have come down from the cross, just like the Pharisees challenged him to do. He could have summoned the hosts of heaven to rescue him. He could have zapped his enemies with lightning and turned them into french fries if he wanted. But he chose to die for the sins of the world. He chose to die for your sins and for mine. And while he was hanging on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, He had the character and the grace to say these words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And and I don't know about you, but that statement raises some pretty big questions in my mind about the nature of forgiveness. There are just so many questions. For instance, who are the them that Jesus is talking about? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, now, granted, there probably were some people in the crowd that day who could plead a certain amount of ignorance. The Roman soldiers had probably heard some, some rumors about Jesus, but, but they really didn't know much about him probably. They had not sat through his talks and his teaching, but the crowds had. I mean, they had seen his miracles. They had heard his teaching. They knew his character. It's incredible to me that they turned against him so quickly, but that's what they did. And then there were the religious leaders. Man, they had every opportunity to learn all they could about Jesus, but they were blinded by their own jealousy and their own ambition. And it makes me wonder, was Jesus talking about all of them when he asked God to forgive them? Was he asking God to pardon everybody in the crowd, even those who didn't care who he was, who didn't believe in him, those who would never have any interest in being forgiven, those who would never look back with shame and regret. Who were the them that he asked God to forgive? And the more I studied this passage, this simple message of forgiveness became more and more complex. And what occurs to me, and and this is really important, is that mankind's forgiveness and God's forgiveness are not the same thing. See, man's forgiveness and God's are not the same. Now, sometimes when we compare humanity, mankind, to God, sometimes we're talking about good and bad, right? God is good, man is bad. We're, we're, we're talking about the, the wisdom of God versus the foolishness of man. But here I'm just saying there are two different kinds of forgiveness. There's mankind's forgiveness. There's God's forgiveness. They're both good. They're both godly. They're both important. They're both in the Bible. They're just different. And this picture of Jesus on the cross, I think, gives insight to both kinds of forgiveness. So I want to talk today about the heart of forgiveness. And I don't want to spend so much time debating the nature of forgiveness that we kind of lose sight of how amazing it is. Kind of like grace that we talked about last month. I don't want to dissect forgiveness to the point that we diminish the beauty of it. I just want to take a few minutes to really drill down into this, maybe a little deeper than we normally do, so so hang with me here. Then we'll come up for air and hopefully put it all together at the end. But I think this is important. So let's start with this idea that mankind's forgiveness is personal. 
Okay, it's personal. What that means is that we can only forgive those people who have done things to hurt us personally. Let's say that Jeff Miller, one of our elders, backs his truck into my car here in the church parking lot. Jeff cannot go to Don Wilkin from our church and say, gee whiz, Don, I'm really sorry that I dented Mark's car. I mean, for one thing, I can't imagine Jeff saying gee whiz. But besides that, okay, he can't apologize to Don for wrecking my car. It doesn't work that way. He might wish he could because Don's nicer than I am. But he's got to come to me, right, because it's personal. At the same time, I might have the right to forgive Jeff for backing into my car, but I don't have the authority to forgive Jeff for hurting his wife's feelings. Let's say, hypothetically, that Jeff gives Darlene a lousy Valentine's Day gift and she's mad at him. He can't come to me and say, Mark, please forgive me for being such a cheap husband. Okay, I don't have the authority to grant forgiveness for that. He's got to work that out with Darlene because forgiveness is personal. Mankind's forgiveness is person to person. I can only forgive those who've sinned against me. You can only forgive people who've sinned against you. And even if we forgive somebody, that does not automatically absolve them of all guilt, right? If you forgive somebody for stealing all your money, well, good for you, but that does not erase their guilt in the eyes of the law or in the eyes of God, okay? There is still justice to be done, perhaps. There's an obligation there. It's just that you've granted your personal forgiveness to them. That's what mankind's forgiveness is. It's personal. It can only be done person to person. Kind of another personal side to it is that it benefits us personally. If I hurt you and you forgive me, man, you're going to feel better. It's a burden lifted from your shoulders. The shackles come off. You feel better because you let go of the hurt, the pain, the bitterness, and the hatred. Forgiveness is the best thing for you because it's the key to healing. That's what that movie clip was about that I showed you before the sermon. It's from the movie The Interpreter with Sean Penn and Nicole Kidman. And in the movie, she's from South Africa, and she lives among the Matobu people. And she says that the family of a murdered person could either seek revenge and stay bitter, or they could release the hatred and let the person live. Now, it doesn't suggest that they're erasing this person's guilt. It certainly doesn't bring the dead person back. It's a decision only the family could make to choose to grieve with hope by letting the killer live or to grieve with bitterness by taking the killer's life. Human forgiveness is personal. We offer it to the ones who've hurt us. And we do that so that we can find healing in our own lives, whether they ask for it, whether they deserve it or not. Now, on the other hand, God's forgiveness is different. God's forgiveness is universal. See, if I hurt you and you refuse to forgive me, I can still take that to God. I can tell him I'm sorry. I can repent and he will forgive me. In fact, the Bible says he will forgive me for all of my sins, the sins that I've committed against him, against you, against myself, that, that all those sins can be removed. Forgiveness from God is available all the time. 
provided we're truly sorry and truly want to be forgiven. Seriously, I hear people get hung up on this, what's the unforgivable sin and all that, and we don't have time to talk about that. But let me just say this, if you want to be forgiven, there is no sin you can commit that's unforgivable. If you truly want to be forgiven, you can be forgiven. That's the message of grace, it's the message of the Bible, and it's the message of, of Jesus. You're never beyond the reach of God's grace if you truly want to be forgiven because his forgiveness is universal. Listen to Colossians 1.13. God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Now, no human being can do that. No human being can release us from all of our sins, but God can through Jesus. Mankind's Forgiveness is personal. God's is universal. Now, here's another contrast. Mankind's forgiveness is unconditional. What that means is there's no conditions upon which we are allowed to refuse to forgive somebody. Yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. There's no condition that allows us not to forgive. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, when you're praying, forgive anyone that you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. He said in Luke 6, 37, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it will come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Jesus does not say you only have to forgive those who ask for forgiveness. He does not say only forgive those who prove that they're truly sorry for their sins. He did not say forgive only as long as what they did was not too horrible, it didn't leave any marks, it can be fixed for $200 or less. He didn't put any stipulations on it at all. He said, forgive, just forgive. Now listen, this is important. That does not mean that you have to automatically trust them again. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. This does not mean that you have to be best friends or live next door to them. It does not mean that you have to forget all about it and pretend it never happened and go back to the way things were before. It does not mean that you don't hold them accountable. It does not mean that there are not consequences. It just means that we have to let go of the hurt and the bitterness and the anger. We choose to forgive no matter what. It's not easy. It's not easy. But it is in our best interest. We're doing it for us as much as for them because we will be better. We will feel better. We will live better. God's forgiveness is different than ours. Okay? Our forgiveness is unconditional. Now, what I'm about to say might confuse you a bit. Okay? So, either pay really close attention to what I'm about to say, or I want you to put your hands over your ears, think about the Super Bowl, and hum the national anthem, preferably in the key of A. Okay? But I'm just saying, either listen really carefully or don't listen at all because you're going to get confused otherwise, and then you're going to be mad and say, we ought to get rid of that guy. All right? This is really, really important. Man's forgiveness is unconditional, but God's forgiveness is conditional. Okay? I am not talking about God's love. We talk about how his love is unconditional, and it is. It is unconditional. His love, he, he loves you no matter what. He will love you forever no matter what, no matter how rebellious a person might be, no matter how much they refuse him and, and hate him, and how maybe they go to their deaths, never interested at all in a relationship. He loves all the time no matter what. His love is unconditional, but his forgiveness is different than his love. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. 
But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. If we refuse to forgive, God will not forgive us. There's a condition on us receiving his forgiveness. In Acts 10.43, it says, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We must believe in Jesus to be forgiven. It's a condition. The apostle Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We repent, we turn from our wicked ways, and we are baptized into Christ. And he says, you'll be forgiven. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to be willing to confess our sins, tell God we're sorry. If we never ask God to forgive us, then he's not going to forgive us because it's a condition that's placed on that. It does not mean that we're better than God because ours is unconditional and his is conditional. We're different. He tells us what to do. We do it. He does it differently. And all this brings us then to one more contrast that I want to show you, okay? Then we'll come back to Jesus on the cross and we'll be done. Mankind's forgiveness releases the hurt. Okay, if, if I forgive you for hurting me or you forgive me for hurting you, we're not removing all guilt before God. We're not washing a person's soul white as snow. We don't have the authority to do that. We're simply releasing the hurt. I'm giving up my right to get back at you. You're giving up your right to get back at me. We are relinquishing our rights in favor of forgiveness. It is liberating to release the hurt, to let go of the bitterness, and to move on. On the other hand, God's forgiveness does more than release the hurt. God's forgiveness erases the guilt. Okay, God's forgiveness erases the guilt. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 8, 12. This is God speaking. I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. He erases the guilt. God's forgiveness cancels the debt. He wipes us clean. He washes us white as snow. We're no longer guilty in his eyes. He looks at us totally differently once we receive his perfect forgiveness. Now, there may still be consequences we have to deal with. We may have severed relationships in our lives, poor health because of our choices, deep scars, broken dreams. There may be financial stress. There may be time in prison. We may have debts that we have to pay the rest of our lives, but God erases the sin. He washes us clean. His forgiveness is total and absolute. Now, we've covered a lot today, and I was trying to think, how do you have a bottom line for all the things we've talked about? And, and I, I don't know what it is. And so I decided that this last contrast, I think, is what I want you to take home with you today. Okay, that mankind's forgiveness releases the hurt. God's forgiveness erases the guilt. That's the difference, and it is different. Bottom line, man's forgiveness releases the hurt, but God's forgiveness erases the guilt. Now, at the risk of confusing you even more, let me explain one more thing to you. When Jesus was here on earth, remember, he was God and he was man at the same time. This is so important. On the cross, when he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, I believe, I believe that he was speaking man's forgiveness, not God's forgiveness. Here's why. 
He was not erasing everyone's sins in the audience that day. He was not pronouncing ultimate forgiveness on all the people who were out there who were being so horrible. He was praying to God on their behalf. He was praying as we're supposed to do. He was setting an example. Many of those people would never ask to be forgiven. Many of them would never repent. Many of them would go to their deaths never meeting any of God's conditions for forgiveness. Jesus was simply doing what all human beings are asked to do. Rather than being bitter and hateful, we should pray for our enemies. We give up our right to get revenge. So in these first of his last words, he was showing us, listen, an example of how we are to forgive others. We release the hurt even if they aren't sorry. But that's not all that's happening here. When Jesus died on the cross, he was also paying the debt for our sins so that we could receive God's forgiveness. See, his forgiveness of his enemies was human forgiveness. The forgiveness that he achieved that day on the cross was God's forgiveness. Ephesians 1.7 says, God is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and he forgave our sins. On the cross... Jesus' life intersected with both kinds of forgiveness. Let me say it this way, just for clarity's sake. Okay, Jesus modeled the forgiveness of man, forgiveness that releases the hurt, but he achieved the forgiveness of God, forgiveness that erases our guilt forever. What this means is if you've been hurt, if you've been betrayed, if you've been lied to or cheated or robbed or abandoned or abused or attacked, the best thing you can do is forgive. It's the best thing you can do for your own peace of mind. It's the best thing you can do for your relationship with God. That's human forgiveness. At the same time, if you've done something to hurt somebody else, well, you know, I mean, you've been abusive or, or you've attacked or you've cheated or you've lied. Well, man, I mean, apologize if you have the opportunity. But take that sin to Jesus because he's the only one who has the authority and the power and the grace to, uh, to, to wipe you clean, to, 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 to wash you and make you brand new. Mankind's forgiveness releases the hurt, but God's forgiveness erases the guilt. And that, I mean, that changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your grace. Lord Jesus, we just, we just are amazed that you would lay down your life for us, that you would give everything, that we could receive your beautiful, amazing grace. And, and the reality is that we struggle to forgive. It's hard. There are people, I'm sure in this room, people listening online, there are people in our church who have been hurt so, so deeply. But God, the, the beauty of forgiveness is that when we let it go, we become free. And we experience just a whole new, fresh start in our lives. So give us that strength, I pray. And Lord Jesus, when we think about you on the cross, how you prayed for your enemies, but then you gave your life and you died in our place so that we could receive what you offer. We are so grateful. We love you, Lord. We pray that you'd help us when this just becomes too much for us to do on our own. And thank you. Thank you that you help us 
And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.